1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking uh, with Professor Sylvia Krotowska, Professor Sylvia Krotowska is a professor of humanities and social and political thought at York University. She's the author of Literature on Trial, The Emergence of Critical Discourse in Germany, Poland, and Russia, 1700 to 1800, which was published in 2012. And today she's here to talk with us about her latest book called Utopia in the Age of Survival, Between Myth and Politics, a book published by Stanford University Press. Sylvia, welcome to New Books Network.
2: Hello, welcome. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Thank you. Um, Silva, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself first? Tell us how you became interested in uh, social and political thought, your your area of expertise, and also why you decided to write a book about utopia.
2: Well, um, my main field is, you could say my main field, though I'm I'm a generalist, is critical social theory, especially the Frankfurt School. And um, an important part of critical theory uh, is its contribution to utopian thought. I've been writing about utopia in the wake of, in particular, Theodore Adorno for over a decade now. Um, I had originally intended for this to be a longer book of essays about different aspects of utopian thinking that I've I've written about over the years. But my acquisitions editor at Sanford astutely suggested something shorter, uh, hard-hitting, with crossover potential to reach the widest possible readership, so the book could be released simultaneously in hardcover and in affordable paperback. Uh, To be honest, about half of Utopia and the Age of Survival was written in response to the publisher's vision, keeping it academic, but also topical. I decided to focus the project around three questions. Uh, The first was, what to do with the concept of Utopia today? The second, what strands or movements in past utopian thinking can illuminate and help us rethink uh, the concept of utopia? And the third question, uh, where are utopian thinking and action to be found in our time? Both action that openly claims to be utopian and or, or, or for utopia in some sense and action that doesn't make this claim. And in both cases, acts that don't, at least at first glance, start from anything like a classic utopian vision, but more from a desire for utopia or a desperate hope for it. Um, Rather than utopian, I like to call such concrete struggles utopianizing, attributing to them a utopian longing or ethos or efficacy. Uh, I finished the book during the COVID pandemic in early 2021, inspired by the inevitable disappointment of that moment. Uh, despite some signs of positive change. By this, I don't mean pseudo-utopian agendas like the Great Reset of the capitalist world economy, which took a hit. I'm thinking of temporary, though unequal, loss of revenue and of the Great Resignation, the US, for instance. Like many others, I saw in the challenges of the pandemic an opportunity to reimagine the world but not to build a supposedly healthier, more equitable, more prosperous future on fundamentally corrupt foundations. Often enough, of course, resilience, sustainability, responsibility are just empty buzzwords. So my own skepticism about global change doesn't exclude dreams of something much better.
1: Mm. Uh, Well, I can see how uh, you decided to write a book and you, you, you touched on a lot of interesting topics, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go ahead. But before that, can you uh, tell us uh, about how you use the term utopia? What is this definition of utopia, especially in current uh, day and time? And part of the uh, your argument, which I really found interesting, was that you talk about it as a marketing tool.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll first talk about how it's used these days. Yeah. And I, I see the term being used increasingly in a positive sense. To sell us things to sell us on things uh, which dilutes and even voids its sense uh, you could say that capitalism in associating the word utopia with desirable commodities has contributed greatly to rehabilitating the idea of utopia of utopia but by first of all making it mushy you know, toothless kind of insipid uh, let's not forget that many of history's utopian thinkers and i'd include in this category along with Jean Fourier, both Engels and Marx, uh, let's not forget that these social uh, socialist dreamers would reject being labeled utopists, uh, precisely because in their day, utopia already connoted idealism, wishful thinking. It was used pejoratively, pejoratively from about the 1830s on by the left, as well as the right. There's a sketch of this history in the book's uh, opening. Parenthetically, That common sense of utopia as representing unattainable perfection was due in part to the reception history of Thomas More's book Utopia, a work in two parts, let's not forget, but some editions omitted the first and printed only the second, uh, which is devoted to a detailed account of the island of utopia, Uh, very fanciful and not to be taken at face value. Part one of the book, however, is a dialogue of ideas that's indispensable for context and understanding Moore's whole project vis-a-vis his great forerunners, Plato and Aristotle. So Utopia got its reputation as something unrealistic from readers' ignorance of the fact that this seminal book was meant not as a social blueprint, but as an exercise in social critique and as a regulative ideal on which we're to reflect. With the appearance in public debate of utopia's antithesis, that's to say of dystopia, uh, the meaning of utopia began to change. Dystopia and its synonym uh, cacotopia, both mean bad place, emerged as a genre of the literary and political imagination over the 18th and 19th centuries. Even before the Nazi and Stalinist totalitarianism, and certainly in their wake, critics feared that badly conceived, overly schematic rationalist, rigoristic utopias would tip over into dystopias if their realization were attempted. The more they made this connection, the more utopia came to be denounced as a dubious and risky proposition or as a recipe for disaster. Before, when their large-scale realization was impossible, utopian plans were just seen as foolish fantasy. In the first half of the 20th century, however, once the means of change had caught up, or so it seemed, with the ends envisioned by utopian visionaries, so once the gap between dream and reality could apparently be closed by human ingenuity, writers like Zamyatin, Huxley, and Orwell began imagining nightmare social scenarios arrived at by ostensibly good intentions. But uh, I think we've moved beyond the cliched identification of utopia with dystopia, warning us that utopias should never leave the paper they're written on. We've moved towards a more dialectical understanding of the utopia-dystopia relationship, at least in in academia. And the second development that has shaped the way we use the word utopia today had to do with the actual state of the world. It was partly geopolitical and partly planetary. Uh, Geopolitical, uh, when the world and cold wars, together with the possibility of a nuclear holocaust, raised the specter of a total dystopia. Yeah, total, real total dystopia. And it was also a planetary development since from the sixties, even if the alarm had already sounded in the forties, the public became aware of the human threat to the environment, the danger of us exceeding the earth's carrying capacity, uh, irreversibly crossing ecological thresholds. Um, In other words, the existing world as a whole was coming to resemble for some at least a dystopia, or was directly headed for one. You could certainly make the claim that this situation was the product of liberal ideology, a side effect of liberal utopia, unaware of its own blind spots, or due to the clash of the utopian contents of capitalism and socialism. Regardless, it led to more and more dystopias being conjured up by fiction in the popular imagination. And attention turned to dystopian realities and potentials and away from utopian realities and potentials, which uh, by then capitalism was coupling to everyday living in the West. The American way of life, superior in so many respects, acted as a magnet for a long time for dissidents in the Soviet bloc. From which from which I hail, and was taken for granted by these fortunate enough uh, those who were fortunate enough to enjoy the freedom to experiment and engage in countercultural critique of the status quo in the West. So this history explains how the term utopia could eventually shed its dystopian skin and permeate mainstream Western culture, which brings us to today. Uh, I think anyone listening can probably come up with their own examples of Utopia's commercial uses on a label or in an ad. Um, Fresh in my mind is the words appearance in the names of events. For example, at this year's Venice Biennale, Radio Utopia. So this uh, reconstituting ideals in a world in deep crisis. I regularly see Utopia writ large on festival posters to generate amusement, In a sense of community. It stands for something, as I said, quite inoffensive, feel good, fun, creative, uh, participatory for the whole family. This transformation in our attitude towards utopia from a dismissive reaction into one that's quite affirmative is happening the more we draw away from the sense of utopia's practical realization being at hand. When dystopia is at hand, when there's absolutely no danger of utopia's realization anytime soon we warm up to it happiness for every individual uh justice uh freedom and equality for all for many these are mutually compatible universal social ideals that bundled together correspond to a vague idea of utopia in today's culture
1: and uh you 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 mentioned that it's being using, used used a little bit more maybe positive these days but utopia has always been associated with uh I'm, I'm curious to know how it has been always historically associated with hopes despair anxiety and different feelings such as this can you talk about this kind of historical association of hopes sorry utopia with different concepts
2: yeah for sure so um uh it's good that you mentioned hope because hope was conceived as a spinoza as an unhappy passion um, so i think historically and you you needn't look further than Moore's inaugural model, modern utopia published 500 years ago plus um, classical utopias historically were part critique of existing society part fantasy Uh, Appearing at moments of social turmoil, they, of course, registered various anxieties on the part of their authors. But Moore himself did not write a blueprint for a future society. He distinguished clearly between wishing or desiring and hoping or expecting. The utopian model could inspire changes in the real world, but a social ideal is by nature unrealizable cannot be hoped for, expected. It remains only a wish image, an object of desire. But hope and desire, as I explain in the book, remain close in utopianism, particularly when they align. Hope for utopia draws strength from desire for it, and vice versa, and each can activate the other. What's needed is their affective synergy to be effective to animate the will to utopianize reality. I also think that sad passions as widespread today as our anxiety, fear and despair, which you mentioned, all of them in moderate doses can stimulate utopian hope and spur action, which in turn spurs more hope. Um, A recent study out of Norway found a strong positive link between fear and sadness and hope and behavioral changes to deal with, uh, to address climate change. Despite its denigration and rising hopelessness, hope still has a major role to play. Effective utopianism is about imagining the desirable and the possible together. In other words, about it's about hoping as well as wishing.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, how about the idea of a bodily utopian thinking—that's something I hadn't thought about myself before. Uh, how, how is you? Uh, how do you think utopia is linked with these bodily desires and practices, and not simply with capital accumulation?
2: Mm-hmm. So utopia is, uh, on, on my on my interpretation, is an embodied desire for a qualitatively better society. A desire that, as I've suggested, can inspire hope and collective action to bring about positive change. This desire can generate utopian wish images. In the book, I make use of the term body utopia. Uh, utopian images dictated by bodily satisfaction and gratification precede capitalism. They actually go back to antiquity. They project uh, projected what the body lacks here and now, but also what it feels like without necessarily lacking it, spontaneous whims, if you will, in utopias, bodily needs that arise are met and many more desires are fulfilled than would be in their author's contemporary reality. But the content of needs and desires at any given point differs from individual to individual, right? It cannot be anticipated or legislated for, for everyone. Not to mention that the relationship between desire and need is complex. People could be divided, I, I'd say, into needers who construe even desire in terms of need and desirers who put the satisfaction of their desires before that of their needs, so inverting the hierarchy. Now body utopians, those who dwell in these imaginary body utopias themselves are imagined as desirers since their vital needs are largely met body utopias are worlds of abundance inspired by real felt lack and the desire to access the realm of freedom where desire is no longer alienated as the desire for commodities yeah and capitalism and instead becomes the desire becomes educated both sensually and intellectually to explore and to expand within our bodily and biological. Uh, limits
1: and, and this idea of uh, you, uh, bodily utopian thinking. You uh, you argue that it emerged in France between 1930s and 1970s. So wh- why in France and why between 1930s and 70s? What was pe- uh, particular about France and also that time period that you analyzed?
2: Yes, I re- I said it reemerged in France because, uh-huh. I, as I just mentioned, it's an it's it's actually an ancient imaginary. Um, So in chapter two of the book, um, I look at some of the history of body utopianism. Uh, What interested me here primarily was the imaginary uh, resurgence of bodily utopian longings in two critical cultural movements, which are surrealism and the situationist international, uh, both originating in France, but international in scope with groups or network of members uh, across the world also valuable to me uh, here was bodily utopian thinking from the late 60s on in the frankfurt school critical theory orbit in france which up until the 60s was still a very traditional society embodied desire and utopia suddenly took center stage in surrealism it was inspired by rediscovered writings of Fourier, who in fact had already dialectically transcended the dichotomy between body utopia and city utopia. Um, for the, the surrealist ethos of everyday life was desires, uh, loves, and loves freedom from aesthetic and moral concerns, but without going as far as desublimation, which as Herbert Marcuse taught, can uh, shortcut social critique and be repressive. Then in in, in the wake of the Surrealists came the letterists and and their successors, uh, uh, the situationists, who in trying to one up the Surrealists invented radically new forms of play, such as the construction of situations, urban psychogeography, uh, and a new urbanism, at the heart of which were concrete physical experiences as sensory, sensual utopianizing practices. The cultural ferment of revolutionary ambitions and ruthless social critique culminated, of course, in the general strike and the youth revolt of May 68, just when capitalism was consolidating its power over the utopian imagination. So the stage was set for early critics of the sexual revolution, like like Giorgio uh, Cesarano, who read critical theory and incorporated situationist theses in his work in denouncing capital's utopia uh utopia capitale taking apart the fetishism of sexual liberation the undialectical view of desire as vulgar hedonism and capitalism's co-optation of this potentially utopian frontier for Cezarano revolution had to start with the body as a, an erotic insurrection as he called it from within and against life as survival
1: um how how about the environmental movement how how did the french environmental movement contribute to this idea of utopia and that's where you also highlight the theme of survival which is very much relevant to 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 the to the environmental movement as well
2: survival is a concept present throughout the book uh, and it does does a lot of lifting it's not just Uh, another way of defining our age as it's used in my title. Various political and social theorists from Walter Benjamin to the situationists have opposed survival to life. We should not content ourselves with living in glorified augmented survival, that is with life reduced to economic imperatives, um, biological life simply, that governments would have us accept as the only possible uh, life, even the aim of life. Um, The latter part of chapter two uh, reconstructs the, to my mind, valuable yet forgotten conception of survival as it crystallized in the earliest and most radical phase of the French environmental movement. In the group and review, uh, Survivre, later renamed Survivre et Vivre, survive and live, their ecology was already intertwined with the visionary project of social emancipation and social transformation. The existence of Survivre overlapped with that of the Situationist International, whose influence on it, its undialectical critique of survival, contributed to the movements splitting and soon after uh, dissolving in 1972.
1: And uh, about the use of the term utopia in your book, you talk about this specula- utopia as a speculative myth and also hypothesis. What do you mean by these classifications?
2: Um, yes, the, the, the social theory I draw on, Frankfurt School critical theory and those in its orbit, inspired by it. Also the work of the great philosopher of utopia, Ernst Bloch. Mm. Uh, they did not revive this idea of utopia as speculative myth. While saving utopianism, they in fact distance themselves from myth. For Adorno, for instance, utopia can only be defended in the negative. Um, The French political philosopher, Miguel Avensor, for his part, studied the history of utopianism and saw that it had moved away from the classical statist vision of the static ideal city, outside history, derived from Plato, who of course incorporated myth, utopian thought, in other words, moved away uh, uh, from from its tradition and moved away even from its modern temporalized designs projected into the future, which were of course very presumptive in that they determined well in advance what the best social organization will be for those still unborn. Aben was a reader Uh, and publisher in French of uh, Adorno, of Benjamin uh, and others from the Frankfurt School. Uh, In his reading of the history of utopianism, he saw utopia as transforming beneath the weight of its own self-criticism into a simulacrum close to daydreams, play and secular myths, a kind of creative virtuality and a seduction, a, 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 a sensory, sensual seduction to experimentation and action this newfound provisionality and plurality of utopian imagining made it a speculative opening in the given that could inspire and mediate, educate, desire, the affects generally, to solve problems and bring a new and better world into being, yet without prescribing or proposing precise solutions, since this self-interrogation of utopianism, which Abensur called the new utopian spirit, exhibited a critical theoretical uh, hermeneutic watchfulness to prevent utopias from turning into their opposite. Utopianism had to watch out for myth to wrest its imaginative constructs from the frozen ideological mythic picture. The, The less alternative social imaginaries seek mythic closure, the less they fear the other or the outside, the fewer blind spots they have and they run less risk of perpetuating ignorance and oppressing those whom they purport to save or whom they exclude from utopia. The best utopias are aware of themselves as products of limited socially immersed individual imagination. In this perspective, utopias actually cease to appear flawed. Incompleteness is is their nature. They resist closure. Uh, More broadly, this vigilance towards utopian proposals is based on the presentiment that nothing is so right that it doesn't go wrong somewhere uh, sometimes. Past utopian dreams like liberalism were too abstract and their realization proved partial since degenerating into ideology they accepted an institution like slavery.
1: So how do you use the term utopia as a speculative myth and also hypothesis then?
2: Uh, for, for one, I take utopia to be a real practical possibility, and that on a global scale. That is, all are included, all are invited. Yeah? We, we should assume utopia to be hypothetically possible, despite reality pointing the other way. In the past, imaginary utopian societies were taken to be both desirable and impossible. The reaction to them, which made for their continuing appeal, oscillated between their affective pull, yeah, the desire for them, and the realization of their impossibility. This again is the case with classical utopia, yeah, what I've mentioned, as primarily or only an ideal even a very detailed one for contemplation, not realization. Meanwhile, modern utopia understood as social blueprint as a plan to be put into practice, a social goal in other words, must be both desirable and possible. The utopian tradition, literary and philosophical was shaped therefore by mutually contradictory expectations, right? On the one hand, utopia must be perfect And on the other, utopia should be practical. To resolve or move past this contradiction between social ideal and social blueprint, I propose embracing utopia as a working, action-guiding hypothesis and as a myth with multiple instantiations or reworkings of the same basic story, which amounts to utopia being a provisional conjecture about a possible qualitatively better future. In the book, I developed the concept of utopia as a modern social myth, which isn't obvious as a way to rescue, as I said, the idea of utopia and argue for its continued relevance. It risks being counterproductive, especially in the corner of the, of academia in which I work. In the 20th century, myth has been, of course, assimilated to fascism and criticized as a perversion of Enlightenment reason. Yet in creating myths, humans accord rationality to nature to master their fear of it. Our myth-making emancipates us from nature. For someone like Hans Blumenberg, uh, myths are essential imaginative play. Though for him, utopia was historically not mythic, but dogmatic. However, he approved of a negative utopianism like that of his contemporary Adorno, since by being indeterminate, uh, which is what negative means here, being indeterminate, indeterminate, free of positive, iconic, or verbal description, it preserved an ideal of human society. The longtime orthodoxy on myth is too black and white for my taste. Utopia is a myth in the positive sense of that term, a speculative myth of telos, to be precise, and I take the expression from the Canadian literary critic Northrop Fry. It's a nostalgic visualization of a better social order as humanity's final purpose, you know, Telos. I insist on the utopian myth and its value because we mustn't let our dialectical thinking get rusty. We have to get used, be used to dwelling in the gap between reality and utopia rather than assume it can be bridged or has already been bridged somewhere. Closing the gap by mapping out the path you know exactly how to get from the here and now to an always particular image of utopia forecloses utopian experimentation and prevents the emergence of the new but without myth as a plural mobile ever receding horizon utopian desire loses its way and and loses itself on the, on the one hand then and and to recap uh, Utopia is an any embodied desire for the good society, connecting to individual and connecti- connect collective action, such as the prefiguration of such a society. And on the other hand, utopia is hypothetical and speculative. A future-word myth, uh, more or less elaborated, born of desire, that can activate hope and become action-guiding. But is best taken provisionally, as no more than conjecture. Uh, instead of an action-determining plan or program. The power of utopia can be summed up for me in the relationship between these two manifestations of utopianism, first as desire for the good society and second as this desire's mental imaginary object. Utopia as social myth goes, uh, I should also add, beyond solutionism beyond the mentality that poses whatever is imperfect as a problem to be solved problem solving is not inherently creative to problematize something of course already presupposes some critical distance from it but it is it's too direct a gaze it's not accompanied by the oblique imaginary reflection that is the hallmark of literary utopias The past, of course, is a reservoir of various kinds of myths, including social and political ones, the golden age, the apocalypse, classless society, progress, the general strike, uh, the commune, May 68, etc. Some of them based on actual events. We need to reactivate myths uh, those myths that represent aspects of the good society. Myths we deem positive, not repressive, and assimilate them into new social myths, uh, into, into into new constructions. Surrealism is is central to my thinking uh, also for this reason. It tried and still today seeks to create just such a new civilizational myth.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: The strength of utopia that you argue is in its uh, iconoclasm. What do you mean by that?
2: The original target of iconoclasm uh, were, of course, religious images, for being too Mm. explicit. But utopian blueprints, the form that the utopian speculative myth has taken most, can become objects of veneration. I return in the book to Russell Jacobi's distinction between the blueprinty and the iconoclastic modes of utopianism. The iconoclastic kind strikes down our images of utopia. So these two modes are dialectically related. As an intellectual current, utopianism is inherently iconoclastic towards especially its overly positive, elaborate, fully-fledged utopian plans. That's to say it attacks its own mythical expressions. The visions that become too dominant become targets of the iconoclastic utopian tendency. In other words, competing visions emerge in response, which in turn themselves become targets of procriticism. criticism And in this way, utopianism proceeds by offering determinate normative content and resisting it. The effect of this process is the perpetual revision of utopian visions, reworking the fundamental utopia myth. Um, Humanity has been dreaming up utopias by criticizing existing societies, but then taking them down by criticizing the dreams so as not to let them become idols, images for blind adulation. In the 20th century, the iconoclastic attitude in utopianism became more intense for reasons already mentioned. Utopia's openness, provisionality, which I mentioned, revisability is now emphasized over its perfection, its definiteness. This plurality and diversity of recipes for the good society ensures and is a measure of utopia's vitality. There will always be tension between different utopian designs circulating and confronting one another in public. The point is not to eventually arrive at consensus, at some ultimate vision. What we should be looking for is healthy conflict between utopias, where those without a commitment to a holistic social transformation can be taken to task.
1: And utopia has generally been associated with the left. And how do you think, I, I could be wrong, I don't know, so I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected. I just have a feeling that maybe they're, they're kind of distancing themselves from utopia more more, more or less these days. But, but how do you think that the left should adopt the idea of utopia again? How should they use it given the current crises that uh, are confronting them?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, and now we come kind of to the point, yeah, like why mm-hmm. this book, like how we come to the part of the matter, <laughs> I don't think the left has ever really abandoned the idea of utopia, as demonstrated, for instance, by the popularity uh, of Eric Olin Wright's idea of real utopias, that is concrete alternatives to social organization, of social organization, appearing in the interstices of our capitalist society. As you know, having read me, I'm not convinced by this idea of real utopias. And that is because construing experimental islets as real utopias uh, loses sight of the myth of revolution. And even paradoxically of the utopian perspective by essentially offsetting the deficiencies of the state's public systems, like healthcare, education, energy, and social services, compensating for its failings um, uh, through building local solidarity networks, putting a good face on self-managing penury, uh, trying to escape social instability and entropy by claiming autonomy and a safe haven for particular groups. Ensuring our survival there where the state apparatus lets us down, takes us only a small distance to utopia, by no means all the way. I meant my own intervention as a contribution to recalibrating left-wing axiology to the telos to which such experiments might become reframed as means. Needless to say, to prefigure a better society, the means must not be limited to recovering what had to be given up or was lost but must also be consistent with the always provisional, progressive, uh, utopian ends. Let me be clear, I'm not against communal experiments in alternative living, only against their claim to being realizations of utopia, or, or the claim being made on their behalf. They are better thought of as practical utopianism, that is utopian thinking embodied in action and as ends effacing uh, uh, collective prefigurations of utopia. I'd like to refocus us on our not yet, on a common and mobile human social horizon, rather than uh, think about the so-called real utopias already built inside the cracks in the edifice of capitalism. And with that, hopefully to restart this stalemated conversation about radical political utopianism, revolutionary utopianism, if you like, setting its sights on a global society freed of politics uh, because post-classist and post-statist.
1: And uh, why, why do you think the idea of uh, survival is a politically utopian practice?
2: It sounds counterintuitive, right, mm-hmm. to claim that survival yeah. can have anything to do with, with utopia, since survival <laughs> sounds almost antithetical, yeah. uh, antithetical to utopia. In in chapter three of my book, um, I write in support of certain political movements and acts that defy states, that seek to undermine the monopoly on politics by authoritarian as well as representative democratic governments. I'm, of course, also for those actions that aim to question the state form as such, and not just its authoritarian and and biopolitical variants. Around the world, states are letting many people down. This disappointment registers in the utopian imagination. We're pretty much through with city utopias, those classical, archistic models, the state's monopoly on the utopia mold is over. In the section of the book entitled The Utopia of Survival, I'm not however equating utopia with survival. I clearly don't mean that survival, mere survival, should be the be all and end all of utopianism. Even if for those living on the brink of environmental and social collapse, surviving is beginning to look good enough and we dare not aspire and hope for much more. No, by utopia of survival, I mean survival as the condition from which utopian desire can spring, and does spring, among those whom the state has let down. A lived experience of indignity, disempowerment, the bare existential minimum, physical vulnerability, threatened life, which is just about living on, but can also be about reducing the threat and overcoming this condition, improving one's life. Now, the radical politics of survival, what I name politics of survival, which takes many forms, is a politics in which biological survival is at stake. Such politics, when it arises from its actor's condition of survival, is utopianizing if and when it points beyond bodily survival towards a utopian post-political vision it is so even in the case of political actors who voluntarily choose physical self-sacrifice self-destruction in the name of life Mm -hmm. when their target is state-sponsored survival when their revolt is against injustice that denies life that turns life into mere survival even that is in in the in in the form of necropolitics necro resistance which i discuss at length uh, following the pioneering work done by ashirom bembe and banu Bargu, Mm -hmm. accepting to live only on condition that life ceases to be unlivable um merely making out a living continually continually struggling to keep afloat um so accepting to live only on the condition that 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 we we we, we can get beyond this uh, condition, and self sacrifice to obtain amelioration of social and political conditions for others, and that is uh, that is what I mean by politics of self sacrifice. What others mean by politics of self sacrifice, and the range of political phenomena, uh, I think I think together under this heading of politics of survival is vast from ranges from hunger strikes to public acts of self immolation, to climate activism, to sex extremism, to the prefigurative politics of ascesis, such as direct democracy in the yellow vest movement, uh, neo zapatism, uh, ecologically minded uh, Zaydism, um, and um, and the in Rojava leaving the state behind
1: oh sorry i forgot to unmute my microphone uh Uh, how do you think this utopia will look like if 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 our main mode of engagement with the crisis that we are facing is survival especially you know in the light of recent pandemic
2: we're we're in a post-covid world i think we can say uh, at least post-covid alarmist covid um we haven't built back better some liberal politicians we're even promising us a responsible capitalism, we're facing increasingly automation and joblessness. When the utopian dream is a post-scarcity society, the answer isn't toting ascetic self-sufficiency and voluntary simplicity in our world. Calling for such small-scale changes uh, might even be undermining the joint pursuit of environmentalism and utopianism that is slowing down or stopping climate and biospheric changes by driving massive social political change. Ironically, those who are favorable to successful micro-utopian experiments might be raising utopia's profile at the price of its real long-term pursuit. To utopias attackers, utopianism is intrinsically self-defeating, ever turning out dystopias. Whereas to utopias defenders, the question of utopia is purely theoretical as there is no chance of realizing what utopia stands for anytime soon, that is global world utopia. Uh, The only kind of utopia worthy of that name. So the challenge to utopian thinking today comes from, in principle, its defenders, its stakeholders, more than from its detractors, whose plaints haven't changed. It's no longer that utopias past deformations and miscarriages, if pushed too far, can lead to social catastrophe. Rather, it's that robust utopianism, even one that's wise to its own dangers, strikes too many as a non-starter. All spatial temporal odds seem to be stacked against it. We've abandoned the idea that humanity has world utopian means at our disposal. Life's now now about, really all about damage control and scrambling for the remaining resources and and upgrading existing natural and man-made support systems. We have neither the human resources nor the epistemic and technological tools to realize utopia on a world scale. Now is not the time to attempt utopia on a grand scale, the rhetoric goes, Uh, We've more important things to think about. Instead of imagining living in utopia, we should be surviving in dystopia, focusing our energy on addressing the causes of impending environmental and social collapse, since more basic social structures and values are at stake. In fact, now is the worst time to engage in utopian scenarios. This dismissive anti-utopianism is itself moral uh and demoralizing uh, wishful thinking um, it censures and shames anti-utopian desire uh, opposing what's left of life to utopianism as a luxury it's at once myth-busting and itself another myth i don't think we can give up or give up on utopia that easily uh, these new challenges notwithstanding our deep crisis globally or or even overlapping crises compounded by inaction and inadequate response this mess is actually conducive to utopian thinking at a time like now what will we do without it where would we be without utopian thinking not only does utopian social dreaming um, even in its more radical forms not distract us from the worsening conditions of our lives but it's obvious that nothing short of such dreaming can get us through the dire straits we've entered, and nothing less than it can possibly save us from an even more uh, uh, dire future. Given the dystopian drift of the status quo, we simply have no other livable alternative than holding on to utopia for dear life. Certainly, I don't deny that there is a good deal to reject in historical utopianism, as it's for long been understood, so that we can better avoid its pitfalls it's it's complicated but but rejecting it wholesale as wishful thinking childhood fantasy child childish fantasy now uh, escapism uh, futile expenditure or misdirection of mental energies rejecting what is a tendency of the human mind to reflect beyond its contemporary unhappy conditions amounts to a capitulation to complicity with the horrible present in which Past utopias are only partially implicated, for which uh, they may only uh, partially, uh, partly be to blame. Um, the continuation, prolongation, uh, persistence of utopianism in in its reconstructed form, I think, remains vital and valuable for precisely contending, and not just emotionally but also practically contending with the crises of our time. Mm-hmm. But I want to uh, end um by returning to the energy of survival because around the word world uh, surviving is emerging as a fact of life as its principal mode and even form uh, it's this global reality that feeds dumerism and the corresponding ideologies of resilience and survivalism which go so far as to recast survival as heroic or as a personal success The condition of survival from which 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 all can expect to enter at some point in their lives, uh, looks to be at odds with openly utopian thinking or even utopianizing thinking, gesturing that is towards a better place, expressing a desire for utopia. Yet the desire to live less badly is utopian in its intent, if not a fully fledged utopian dream, of course. This is less because of utopia's moderation and more about the utopian vision being inadvertently restricted now, where we cannot see beyond what lies immediately ahead, namely dystopia, to its possible alleviation. It's a kind of narrow, eclipsed utopianism uh, that might not even recognize itself as such. In this form, utopianism hides like a stowaway inside survival guides to the future if before we expected the future to be positive yeah, from within a present on track of utopia to utopia we're now holding on to the positive in a present on track to dystopia as the present appears through our critique of it and through our problem solving um, so we hesitate to dream big at a time of of narrowly utopian vision when it's imperative to reclaim life from dystopia we proceed by small steps um, and sometimes unknowingly by small steps um, uh, cautiously uh, towards towards utopia if you like gesturing towards utopia uh, uh, unwittingly Uh, Given where we're at, as a society squarely preoccupied by the survival of humans uh, and and environments and democratic cultures, any future worth living living in may register as purely utopian to us. But we dream of it nostalgically as that erstwhile, elaborate, extravagant horizon of social visionaries. The thing is that without dreaming, life is just survival in in the sense of impoverished, degraded life. But dreaming does spring from survival to make such a life bearable. Utopian dreaming is also society's survival skill. It's no, it no more uh, entails real dystopia than it hinders survival. But I wouldn't call myself an optimist, for I'm not saying that being faced with the threat to individual and collective survival will lead to collective struggle uh, to for utopia. And why not? because its dialectical spring might break as social apathy spreads and life Mm -hmm. as self-preservation becomes almost everywhere uh, the new normal. Instead, what I'm saying is that micro and macro level threats to human survival can stimulate, can impel the utopian imaginary. My message is really simple. We're obviously at an anthropological turning point where dreaming big is not just possible but existentially necessary dreaming big not not small because in the end nothing short of a radical utopian transformation would fix what has been done i stress as as many do uh, when it comes to the urgency of climate action that it's now or never Our planet's ultimatum to us includes not just the reduction of carbon emissions to net zero, but also nuclear disarmament and general demilitarization and simultaneously the replacement of capitalism with another system. Utopianism is now largely a matter of survival in the sense that without it to guide our action, we're done for. Desperation is in the air, but so is fortunately Mm -hmm a utopian politics, at least I hope so. Yeah,
1: this is an optimistic uh, optimistic ring to end the interview with. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's a very, very fascinating book, and I strongly recommend our listeners to read the book. You've given us an excellent overview of the main topics in the book. And I think, uh, as I said in the beginning, it's a very, very timely book as well, given the environmental and political crisis that we are facing these days. Thank you so much for your time on New Books Network.
2: Thanks so much Morteza for inviting me to the to the network.